This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Captain Blood by Raphael Sabatini. Chapter 5 Arabella Bishop. One sunny morning in January, about a month after the arrival of the Jamaica merchant at Bridgetown, Miss Arabella Bishop rode out from her uncle's fine house on the heights to the northwest of the city. She was attended by two negroes who trotted after her at a respectful distance, and her destination was Government House, whither she went to visit the governor's lady, who had lately been ailing. Reaching the summit of a gentle grassy slope, she met a tall, lean man, dressed in a sober gentlemanly fashion, who was walking in the opposite direction. He was a stranger to her, and strangers were rare enough in the island. And yet in some vague way he did not seem quite a stranger. Miss Arabella drew rein, affecting to pause that she might admire the prospect, which was fair enough to warrant it. Yet out of the corner of those hazel eyes she scanned this fellow very attentively as he came nearer. She corrected her first impression of his dress. It was sober enough, but hardly gentlemanly. Coat and breeches were of plain homespun, and if the former sat so well upon him it was more by virtue of his natural grace than by that of tailoring. His stockings were of cotton, harsh and plain, and the broad caster which he respectfully doffed as he came up with her was an old one unadorned by band or feather. What had seemed to be a periwig at a little distance was now revealed for the man's own lustrous coiling black hair. Out of a brown shaven saturnine face two eyes that were startlingly blue considered her gravely. The man would have passed on but that she detained him. "'I think I know you, sir,' said she. Her voice was crisp and boyish, and there was something of boyishness in her manner, if one can apply the term to so dainty a lady. It arose perhaps from an ease, a directness, which disdained the artifices of her sex, and set her on good terms with all the world. To this it may be due that Miss Arabella had reached the age of five and twenty not merely unmarried but unwooed. She used with all men a sisterly frankness which in itself contains a quality of aloofness, rendering it difficult for any man to become her lover. Her negroes had halted at some distance in the rear, and they squatted now upon the short grass until it should be her pleasure to proceed upon her way. The stranger came to a standstill upon being addressed. "'A lady should know her own property,' said he. "'My property?' "'Your uncle's leastways. Let me present myself. I am called Peter Blood, and I am worth precisely ten pounds. I know it because that is the sum your uncle paid for me. It is not every man who has the same opportunities of ascertaining his real value.' She recognized him then. She had not seen him since that day upon the mole a month ago and that she should not instantly have known him again despite the interest he had then aroused in her is not surprising, considering the change he had wrought in his appearance, which now was hardly that of a slave. "'My God!' said she. "'And you can laugh.' "'It's an achievement,' he admitted. "'But then, I have not fared as ill as I might.' "'I have heard of that,' said she. What she had heard was that this rebel convict had been discovered to be a physician. The thing had come to the ears of Governor Steed, who suffered damnably from the gout, and Governor Steed had borrowed the fellow from his purchaser. Whether by skill or good fortune, Peter Blood had afforded the governor that relief which His Excellency had failed to obtain from the ministrations of either of the two physicians practicing in Bridgetown. 
Then the governor's lady had desired him to attend her for the megrims. Mr. Blood had found her suffering from nothing worse than peevishness, the result of a natural petulance aggravated by the dullness of life in Barbados to a lady of her social aspirations. But he had prescribed for her none the less, and she had conceived herself the better for his prescription. After that the fame of him had gone through Bridgetown, and Colonel Bishop had found that there was more profit to be made out of this new slave by leaving him to pursue his profession than by setting him to work on the plantations, for which purpose he had been originally acquired. "'It is yourself, madam, that I have to thank for my comparatively easy and clean condition,' said Mr. Blood. The gratitude was in his words rather than in his tone. Was he mocking, she wondered? and looked at him with the searching frankness that another might have found disconcerting. He took the glance for a question, and answered it. "'If some other planter had bought me,' he explained, "'it is odds that the facts of my shining abilities might never have been brought to light, and I should be hewing and hoeing at this moment like the poor wretches who were landed with me.' "'And why do you thank me for that? It was my uncle who bought you.' but he would not have done so had you not urged him. I perceived your interest. At the time I resented it. You resented it? There was a challenge in her boyish voice. I have had no lack of experiences of this mortal life, but to be bought and sold was a new one, and I was hardly in the mood to love my purchaser. If I urged you upon my uncle, sir, it was that I commiserated you. There was a slight severity in her tone, as if to reprove the mixture of mockery and flippancy in which he seemed to be speaking. She proceeded to explain herself. "'My uncle may appear to you a hard man. No doubt he is. They are all hard men, these planters. It is the life, I suppose. But there are others here who are worse. There is Mr. Crabston, for instance, up at Spadestown. He was there on the mole, waiting to buy my uncle's leavings, and if you had fallen into his hands. A dreadful man.' That is why. He was a little bewildered. This interest in a stranger, he began, then changed the direction of his probe. But there were others as deserving of commiseration. You did not seem quite like the others. I am not, said he. Oh! She stared at him, bridling a little. You have a good opinion of yourself. On the contrary, the others are all worthy rebels. I am not. That is the difference. I was one who had not the wit to see that England requires purifying. I was content to pursue a doctor's trade in Bridgewater whilst my betters were shedding their blood to drive out an unclean tyrant and his rascally crew. Sir, she checked him, I think you are talking treason. I hope I am not obscure, said he. There are those here who would have you flogged if they heard you. The governor would never allow it. He has the gout, and his lady has the megrims. Do you depend upon that? She was frankly scornful. You have certainly never had the gout. Probably not even the megrims, said he. She made a little impatient movement with her hand, and looked away from him a moment, out to sea. Quite suddenly she looked at him again, and now her brows were knit. But if you are not a rebel, how come you here? He saw the thing she apprehended, and he laughed. Faith, now it's a long story, said he. And perhaps one that you would prefer not to tell? Briefly on that he told it her. 
"'My God! What an infamy!' she cried, when he had done. "'Oh, it's a sweet country, England, under King James. There's no need to commiserate me further. All things considered, I prefer Barbados. Here, at least, one can believe in God.' He looked first to right, then to left as he spoke, from the distant shadowy bulk of Mount Hillbay to the limitless ocean ruffled by the winds of heaven. Then, as if the fair prospect rendered him conscious of his own littleness and the insignificance of his woes, he fell thoughtful. "'Is that so difficult elsewhere?' she asked him, and she was very grave. "'Men make it so.' "'I see,' she laughed a little, on a note of sadness, it seemed to him. "'I have never deemed Barbados the earthly mirror of heaven,' she confessed. "'But no doubt you know your world better than I.' She touched her horse with her little silver-hilted whip. "'I congratulate you on this easing of your misfortunes.' He bowed, and she moved on. Her negroes sprang up and went trotting after her. A while Peter Blood remained standing there, where she left him, conning the sunlit waters of Carlisle Bay below, and the shipping in that spacious haven about which the gulls were fluttering noisily. It was a fair enough prospect, he reflected, but it was a prison— and in announcing that he preferred it to England, he had indulged that almost laudable form of boasting which lies in belittling our misadventures. He turned, and resuming his way, went off in long, swinging strides towards the little huddle of huts built of mud and wattles, a miniature village enclosed in a stockade which the plantation slaves inhabited, and where he himself was lodged with them. Through his mind sang the line of Lovelace, Stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage. But he gave it a fresh meaning, the very converse of that which its author had intended. A prison, he reflected, was a prison, though it had neither walls nor bars, however spacious it might be. And as he realized it that morning, so he was to realize it increasingly as time sped on. Daily he came to think more of his clipped wings, of his exclusion from the world, and less of the fortuitous liberty he enjoyed nor did the contrasting of his comparatively easy lot with that of his unfortunate fellow-convicts bring him the satisfaction a differently constituted mind might have derived from it. Rather did the contemplation of their misery increase the bitterness that was gathering in his soul. Of the forty-two who had been landed with him from the Jamaica merchant, Colonel Bishop had purchased no less than twenty-five. The remainder had gone to lesser planters, some of them to Spatestown, and others still farther north, what may have been the lot of the latter he could not tell, but amongst Bishop's slaves Peter Blood came and went freely, sleeping in their quarters, and their lot he knew to be a brutalizing misery. They toiled in the sugar plantations from sunrise to sunset, and if their labors flagged, there were the whips of the overseers and his men to quicken them. They went in rags, some almost naked. They dwelt in squalor, and they were ill-nourished on salted meat and maize dumplings. Food which to many of them was, for a season at least, so nauseating that two of them sickened and died before Bishop remembered that their lives had a certain value in labor to him, and yielded to Blood's intercessions for a better care of such as fell ill. To curb insubordination, one of them who had rebelled against Kent, the brutal overseer, was lashed to death by negroes under his comrade's eyes, and another who had been so misguided as to run away into the woods was tracked, brought back, flogged and then branded on the forehead with the letters F.T., that all might know him for a fugitive traitor as long as he lived. Fortunately for him, the poor fellow died as a consequence of the flogging. 
After that a dull, spiritless resignation settled down upon the remainder. The most mutinous were quelled, and accepted their unspeakable lot with the tragic fortitude of despair. Peter Blood alone, escaping these excessive sufferings, remained outwardly unchanged, whilst inwardly the only change in him was a daily deeper hatred of his kind, a daily deeper longing to escape from this place where man defiled so foully the lovely work of his Creator. It was a longing too vague to amount to a hope. Hope here was inadmissible. And yet he did not yield to despair. He set a mask of laughter on his saturnine countenance and went his way, treating the sick to the profit of Colonel Bishop, and encroaching further and further upon the preserves of the two other men of medicine in Bridgetown. Immune from the degrading punishments and privations of his fellow convicts, he was enabled to keep his self-respect, and was treated without harshness even by the soulless planter to whom he had been sold. He owed it all to gout and megrims. He had won the esteem of Governor Steed, and, what is even more important, of Governor Steed's lady, whom he shamelessly and cynically flattered and humoured. Occasionally he saw Miss Bishop, and they seldom met but that she paused to hold him in conversation for some moments, evincing her interest in him. Himself he was never disposed to linger. He was not, he told himself, to be deceived by her delicate exterior, her sapling grace, her easy boyish ways and pleasant boyish voice. In all his life, and it had been very varied, he had never met a man whom he accounted more beastly than her uncle, and he could not dissociate her from the man. She was his niece, of his own blood, and some of the vices of it, some of the remorseless cruelty of the wealthy planter must, he argued, inhabit that pleasant body of hers. He argued this very often to himself, as if answering and convincing some instinct that pleaded otherwise, and arguing it he avoided her when it was possible, and was frigidly civil when it was not. Justifiable as his reasoning was, plausible as it may seem, yet he would have done better to have trusted the instinct that was in conflict with it, though the same blood ran in her veins as in those of Colonel Bishop, yet hers was free of the vices that tainted her uncle's for these vices were not natural to that blood. They were, in his case, acquired. Her father, Tom Bishop, that same Colonel Bishop's brother, had been a kindly, chivalrous, gentle soul, who, broken-hearted by the early death of a young wife, had abandoned the old world and sought an anodyne for his grief in the new. He had come out to the Antilles, bringing with him his little daughter, then five years of age, and had given himself up to the life of a planter. He had prospered from the first, as men sometimes will who care nothing for prosperity. Prospering, he had bethought him of his younger brother, a soldier at home reputed somewhat wild. He had advised him to come out to Barbados, and the advice, which at another season William Bishop might have scorned, reached him at a moment when his wildness was beginning to bear such fruit that a change of climate was desirable. William came, and was admitted by his generous brother to a partnership in the prosperous plantation. Some six years later, when Arabella was fifteen, her father died, leaving her in her uncle's guardianship. It was perhaps his one mistake. But the goodness of his own nature colored his views of other men. Moreover, himself he had conducted the education of his daughter, leaving her an independence of character upon which perhaps he counted unduly. As things were, there was little love between uncle and niece, but she was dutiful to him and he was circumspect in his behavior before her. All his life, and for all his wildness, 
he had gone in a certain awe of his brother, whose worth he had the wit to recognize. And now it was almost as if some of that awe was transferred to his brother's child, who was also, in a sense, his partner, although she took no active part in the business of the plantations. Peter Blood judged her, as we are all too prone to judge, upon insufficient knowledge. He was very soon to have cause to correct that judgment. One day, towards the end of May, when the heat was beginning to grow oppressive, there crawled into Carlisle Bay a wounded, battered English ship, the pride of Devon, her freeboard scarred and broken, her coach a gaping wreck, her mizzen so shot away that only a jagged stump remained to tell the place where it had stood. She had been in action off Martinique with two Spanish treasure-ships, and although her captain swore that the Spaniards had beset him without provocation, it was difficult to avoid a suspicion that the encounter had been brought about quite otherwise. One of the Spaniards had fled from the combat, and if the pride of Devon had not given chase, it was probably because she was by then in no case to do so. The other had been sunk, but not before the English ship had transferred to her own hold a good deal of the treasure aboard the Spaniard. It was, in fact, one of those piratical affrays which were a perpetual source of trouble between the courts of St. James's and the Escurial, complaints emanating now from one and now from the other side. Steed, however, after the fashion of most colonial governors, was willing enough to dull his wits to the extent of accepting the English seaman's story, disregarding any evidence that might belie it. He shared the hatred so richly deserved by arrogant, overbearing Spain that was common to men of every other nation from the Bahamas to the main. Therefore he gave the pride of Devon the shelter she sought in his harbour, and every facility to careen and carry out repairs. But before it came to this, they fetched from her hold over a score of English seamen as battered and broken as the ship herself, and together with these some half-dozen Spaniards in like case, the only survivors of a boarding party from the Spanish galleon that had invaded the English ship and found itself unable to retreat. These wounded men were conveyed to a long shed on the wharf, and the medical skill of Bridgetown was summoned to their aid. Peter Blood was ordered to bear a hand in this work, and partly because he spoke Castilian, and he spoke it as fluently as his own native tongue, partly because of his inferior condition as a slave, he was given the Spaniards for his patience. Now Blood had no cause to love Spaniards. His two years in a Spanish prison, and his subsequent campaigning in the Spanish Netherlands, had shown him a side of the Spanish character which he had found anything but admirable. Nevertheless, he performed his doctor's duties zealously and painstakingly, if emotionlessly, and even with a certain superficial friendliness towards each of his patients. These were so surprised at having their wounds healed instead of being summarily hanged that they manifested a docility very unusual in their kind. They were shunned, however, by all those charitably disposed inhabitants of Bridgetown, who flocked to the improvised hospital with gifts of fruit and flowers and delicacies for the injured English seamen. Indeed, had the wishes of some of these inhabitants been regarded, the Spaniards would have been left to die like vermin, and of this Peter Blood had an example almost at the very outset. With the assistance of one of the negroes sent to the shed for the purpose, he was in the act of setting a broken leg, when a deep, gruff voice that he had come to know and dislike as he had never disliked the voice of living man abruptly challenged him. "'What are you doing there?' Blood did not look up from his task. There was not the need. He knew the voice, as I have said. "'I am setting a broken leg.' he answered, without pausing in his labours. "'I can see that, fool!' A bulky body interposed between Peter Blood and the window. 
The half-naked man on the straw rolled his black eyes to stare up fearfully out of a clay-colored face at this intruder. A knowledge of English was unnecessary to inform him that here came an enemy. The harsh, minatory note of that voice sufficiently expressed the fact. "'I can see that, fool, just as I can see what this rascal is. Who gave you leave to set Spanish legs?' "'I am a doctor, Colonel Bishop. The man is wounded. It is not for me to discriminate.' I keep to my trade. Do you, by God? If you'd done that, you wouldn't now be here. On the contrary, it is because I did that I am here. Aye, I know that's your lying tale, the colonel sneered. And then, observing Blood to continue his work unmoved, he grew really angry. Will you cease that and attend to me when I am speaking? Peter Blood paused, but only for an instant. The man is in pain, he said shortly, and resumed his work. In pain, is he? I hope he is, the damned piratical dog. But will you heed me, you insubordinate knave? The colonel delivered himself in a roar, infuriated by what he conceived to be defiance, and defiance expressing itself in the most unruffled disregard of himself. His long bamboo cane was raised to strike. Peter Blood's blue eyes caught the flash of it and he spoke quickly to arrest the blow. "'Not insubordinate, sir, whatever I may be. I am acting upon the express orders of Governor Steed.' The colonel checked, his great face empurpling. His mouth fell open. "'Governor Steed!' he echoed. Then he lowered his cane, swung round, and without another word to Blood rolled away towards the other end of the shed where the governor was standing at the moment. Peter Blood chuckled. But his triumph was dictated less by humanitarian considerations than by the reflection that he had balked his brutal owner. The Spaniard, realizing that in this altercation, whatever its nature, the doctor had stood his friend, ventured in a muted voice to ask him what had happened. But the doctor shook his head in silence and pursued his work. His ears were straining to catch the words now passing between Steed and Bishop. The colonel was blustering and storming, the great bulk of him towering above the wizened little overdressed figure of the governor. But the little fop was not to be browbeaten. His excellency was conscious that he had behind him the force of public opinion to support him. Some there might be, but there were not many, who held such ruthless views as Colonel Bishop. His excellency asserted his authority. It was by his orders that Blood had devoted himself to the wounded Spaniards, and his orders were to be carried out. There was no more to be said. Colonel Bishop was of another opinion. In his view there was a great deal to be said. He said it, with great circumstance, loudly, vehemently, obscenely, for he could be fluently obscene when moved to anger. "'You talk like a Spaniard, Colonel,' said the Governor, and thus dealt the Colonel's pride a wound that was to smart resentfully for many a week. At the moment it struck him silent, and sent him stamping out of the shed in a rage for which he could find no words. It was two days later when the ladies of Bridgetown, the wives and daughters of her planters and merchants, paid their first visit of charity to the wharf, bringing their gifts to the wounded seamen. Again Peter Blood was there, ministering to the sufferers in his care, moving among those unfortunate Spaniards whom no one heeded. All the charity, all the gifts, were for the members of the crew of the Pride of Devon. And this Peter Blood accounted natural enough. But rising suddenly from the redressing of a wound, a task in which he had been absorbed for some moments, 
he saw to his surprise that one lady, detached from the general throng, was placing some plantains and a bundle of succulent sugar-cane on a cloak that served one of his patients for coverlet. She was elegantly dressed in lavender silk, and was followed by a half-naked negro carrying a basket. Peter Blood, stripped of his coat, the sleeves of his coarse shirt rolled to the elbow, and holding a bloody rag in his hand, stood at gaze a moment. The lady, turning now to confront him, her lips parting in a smile of recognition, was Arabella Bishop. "'The man's a Spaniard,' said he, in the tone of one who corrects a misapprehension, and also tinged never so faintly by something of the derision that was in his soul. The smile with which she had been greeting him withered on her lips. She frowned and stared at him a moment, with increasing haughtiness. "'So I perceive. But he's a human being, none the less,' said she. That answer, and its implied rebuke, took him by surprise. "'Your uncle, the colonel, is of a different opinion,' said he, when he had recovered. "'He regards them as vermin to be left to languish and die of their festering wounds.' She caught the irony now more plainly in his voice. She continued to stare at him. "'Why do you tell me this?' "'To warn you that you may be incurring the colonel's displeasure. If he had had his way, I should never have been allowed to dress their wounds.' "'And you thought, of course, that I must be of my uncle's mind?' There was a crispness about her voice, an ominous challenging sparkle in her hazel eyes. "'I'd not willingly be rude to a lady even in my thoughts,' said he. "'But that you should bestow gifts on them, considering that if your uncle came to hear of it—' He paused, leaving the sentence unfinished. "'Ah, well, there it is,' he concluded. But the lady was not satisfied at all. First, you impute to me inhumanity, and then cowardice. Faith, for a man who would not willingly be rude to a lady even in his thoughts, it's none so bad. Her boyish laugh trilled out, but the note of it jarred his ears this time. He saw her now, it seemed to him, for the first time, and saw how he had misjudged her. Sure, now, how was I to guess that? that Colonel Bishop could have an angel for his niece, said he recklessly, for he was reckless as men often are in sudden penitence. You wouldn't, of course. I shouldn't think you often guess aright. Having withered him with that and her glance, she turned to her negro in the basket that he carried. From this she lifted now the fruits and delicacies with which it was laden, and piled them in such heaps upon the beds of the six Spaniards that by the time she had so served the last of them her basket was empty, and there was nothing left for her own fellow-countrymen. These indeed stood in no need of her bounty, as she no doubt observed, since they were being plentifully supplied by others. Having thus emptied her basket, she called her negro, and without another word or so much as another glance at Peter Blood swept out of the place with her head high and chin thrust forward. Peter watched her departure. Then he fetched a sigh. It startled him to discover that the thought that he had incurred her anger gave him concern. It could not have been so yesterday. It became so only since he had been vouchsafed this revelation of her true nature. Bad cess to it now, it serves me right. It seems I know nothing at all of human nature." But how the devil was I to guess that a family that can breed a devil like Colonel Bishop should also breed a saint like this? End of chapter 5 Read by Sandra, in Wales, United Kingdom 
June 2006